I love music. I'm always listening to music. One of my 10,000 Spotify playlists. Uh, If you come by the church office, I will have my earbuds in because I don't want to subject the staff to the kind of music that I listen to. But I love music. And one of the reasons why I love music is because music has a way of making everything all right. And the story of music critic Rashad Allison illustrates this perfectly. Rashad Allison did not have an easy childhood. He was constantly switching schools and cycling in and out of housing projects. His father was a heroin addict who left the family when Rashad was just six. His mother worked double shifts just to put food on the table. And when his mother was home, she offered, as Rashad puts it, a love redolent of vinegar without the slightest hint of sweetness. How sad. What a sad way to describe your mom's love for you. A love redolent or reminiscent of vinegar and without the slightest hint of sweetness. But growing up in rural Arkansas, young Rashad Allison turned to music to make sense of his life. The dysfunction and the sadness and the steely resilience of his family and neighbors was reflected in the R&B songs that played on the 45s, the 45 records in those smoky rooms. Rashad has written a memoir about this called Soul Serenade, Rhythm, Blues, and Coming of Age Through Vinyl. It's a coming-of-age story about growing up in and around Hot Springs and Little Rock, Arkansas in the 1980s. And it's also a tribute to the music that got Rashad through a very rough time in his life. In an interview on NPR recently, Rashad describes how music was an anchor for him during his turbulent childhood. He said this, One of the first sounds I remember is a record, Aretha Franklin's voice. I just remember that well and will always remember it. I may have been like three or four, and after that, music was always this anchor. It was almost as important as food for me. You know, it was, and it was always around, I've noticed. Even in many of the neighborhoods we lived in, folks would bring out their boom boxes and even drag stereo speakers out onto the porch And you would hear music everywhere. And yeah, it was just always there. Music was an anchor for Rashad. It gave him stability. It brought him comfort. His mom loved Aretha Franklin. And his memories of his mom are bound up in Aretha's music. Rashad says, and we could always tell her mood by which Aretha Franklin song was on. She would play the Amazing Grace album. And when she played that, it was something. It was a mix of comfort and discomfort. It was discomfort because we knew we were probably getting ready to move again. There was some shift that was about to happen. But also comforting that, you know, Aretha singing the gospel made us feel as though everything was going to be okay. Music has a way of making everything all right. That was Rashad's experience. 
especially when he heard Aretha singing the gospel. It brought him comfort and made him feel as though everything was going to be okay. And that's exactly what the preacher of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrews in our passage today. The Hebrews needed to be reminded that everything was going to be okay. As long as the preacher of Hebrews was singing the gospel to them through his letter, which is really a sermon, it would comfort the Hebrews and therefore remind them that everything was going to be okay. Rashad Allison found music to be an anchor in the midst of his turbulent childhood. And in the same way, the pastor of Hebrews will remind the Hebrews that they too have an anchor in the midst of the turbulence of their lives. The anchor of the gospel of God's Son. The anchor of their high priest, Jesus. And so what I want to do today is put an image and a picture in your mind to help you. And so pulling from Rashad's story, as well as a song by Corinne Bailey Ray from a few years ago, our big idea today is simply this. Put your gospel records on. Maybe you remember the song by Corinne Bailey Ray from a few years ago. Girl, put your records on. And that's exactly what Rashad Allison did as a child. That Aretha Franklin gospel album brought peace and comfort to Rashad as he endured a very rough childhood. So too, the Bible is a record of God's promises to his people. And it's as we put these gospel records on, as we put these gospel promises on the turntable, that we will then hear again of God's faithfulness to his people. When we open the Bible, we hear again, time and time again, the gospel of God's Son, Jesus. As disciples, gospel music is our anchor. When the gospel is spinning on the record player of our hearts or turning over on the eight track of our hearts or turning over on the cassette deck of our hearts or shuffling on the iPhone of our hearts, if you will. It is then that the gospel sustains us by reminding us that everything is going to be okay. When we hear gospel promises from God's word, they remind us that everything is going to be okay because Jesus is in control of everything. Jesus is sovereign over this world. And so everything's going to be okay because Jesus is in control. Everything's going to be okay in America come the beginning of November and the following four years because Jesus is in charge, He's sovereign. And that's exactly what the pastor to the Hebrews is doing in our passage today. He's reminding the Hebrews about God's promises, that God's promises never expire. He's reminding the Hebrews that they will, in fact, inherit the promises. So look at Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness To have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit 
the promises. Now, remember what we saw a few weeks ago. The Hebrews were faithfully serving and loving their brothers and sisters in Christ because the gospel had landed on the soil of their hearts and it produced this crop that was useful to others. And the preacher reminded them that God would not forget everything that they had done for their brothers and sisters and God would not forget everything that they had done for his name. But he continues to encourage them to show them that they need to have this same earnestness to the end. That they should not become sluggish or remain sluggish. He, he wants them to have the full assurance of hope, he says, until the very end of their lives. Now what's interesting about the Greek word that he uses here for full assurance is that it literally reads that your hope might be filled up. That your hope might be filled up all the way to the top. But why might they lose their hope in the gospel? Why might they lose their hope in the good news that they've come to believe and to receive and that they delight in? Well, remember the context. This was a predominantly Jewish group of believers who were being tempted to return to all the types and shadows in the Old Testament, to return to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And I'm sure they had friends and family members who were pressuring them to come come back to the Old Covenant, come return to the Old sacrificial system so that you can find peace and assurance as you offer a lamb as a sacrifice for your sins. And this was a very real temptation for the Hebrews because they couldn't see Jesus with their physical eyes. But they could see a real live animal dying in their place for their sins. Remember, under the old covenant, you would place your hands, you would lay your hands on an animal. And by doing that, you were saying, I am transferring my guilt and my shame, my rebellion, my sin to this animal, and this animal is going to die in my place. And the priest would then take the animal and slit its throat, throw the blood on the side of the altar, and then take the, depending on the sacrifice, take that animal, place it on the altar. It would be cooked like a barbecue, and the priest would return it to you, and you would eat a portion of that animal in the presence of other worshipers who were there with you. And then the priest would assure you, your sins are forgiven. God has accepted this sacrifice, and you are forgiven. So it was a very tangible assurance that people had under the old covenant. Very tangible assurance that their sins were forgiven. You could see it with your eyes. And you could taste it with your mouth. And you could smell it with your nose. But the Hebrews couldn't see Jesus with their physical eyes. And so the preacher is calling on them to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith. But this was difficult because the Hebrews were being pressured to return to the Old Covenant where they could see with their eyes an animal dying in their place. And they were also experiencing pressure from friends and family. And we know from chapter 10 that they had and they most likely were still experiencing persecution because they said, we believe Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. We believe he's the Redeemer that was promised. So they're experiencing persecution because they were Christians and because they had come to trust in Jesus as the Messiah. Not to mention, the Hebrews were experiencing all of the very ordinary issues that all Christians face in a fallen world. 
They were just like us. They had problems like us. Their families were messy like our families are messy. They had family problems. They had wayward children. They had marital struggles. They had broken relationships. They knew heartache. They knew sickness. They knew job loss. They knew financial strains. They were experiencing everything that God's people experience in this world. And that's why they were susceptible to lose hope. And that's how it is, isn't it? When life gets dark, when life is hard, and when we suffer, and we go through turbulent seasons of life, and there's heartache, relational strain, doesn't it oftentimes feel hopeless? Why is it that when we feel discouraged by our circumstances and weighed down by this world's brokenness, why is it that sometimes it feels hopeless? It's like our hope starts to leak. There's a slow drip and it begins to drain out. So the preacher is encouraging the Hebrews to keep their hope tank filled all the way up to the top, to the very end of their lives. But how do you fill up on hope? How do you fill up on hope when life is hard and families are messy and and church is messy? How do you fill up on hope when sometimes, if you're honest, it just feels hopeless? The answer is you fill up with hope by hearing the gospel again and again and again. In other words, you put your gospel records on. You rehearse God's promises. You find a promise in his word and you cling to it and you memorize it and you read it and you say it over and over again and you speak it to one another. You remind yourself that you have a father in heaven who is working all things for your good and for his glory. You remind yourself that things are not as they appear You put your gospel records on and you remind yourself that God is writing stories in your life and he's redeeming messes in ways that you and I simply cannot see. Sometimes we can't see what God is doing in the heart of another person and how he's redeeming these messes. And so you remind yourself of that as you put these gospel records on. And that's what faith is. Faith is trusting the promises of God. And that's what the preacher is doing in the last part of chapter 6. He's going over one of the elementary uh, truths of the gospel that he mentioned back in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. When he said faith toward God. He's rehearsing the gospel again with the Hebrews. So please understand that's why we're always talking about the gospel here at Grace. Because on any given Sunday, and I'm sure today as well, people drag themselves in here and they're weighed down with guilt. And they're weighed down with shame. And they're weighed down with stress. And they're weighed down with heartache. And, and weighed down with the stress of raising kids and and. And paying bills. And so what happens to you when you are in that state? What happens to you when you're in that state of being weighed down and you stop hearing the good news of the gospel? What happens is your hope starts to leak out. 
You lose hope when you stop hearing the promises that are found in God's word. And that's why the preacher says in verse 12 that he doesn't want the Hebrews to uh, be sluggish. This word sluggish is the same word that he used back in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 when he said, you have become dull of hearing. I don't know why the ESV translates it sluggish here and dull of hearing there, but they do. But it's the exact same word. He's already told them, you've become dull of hearing. And he says, and I don't want you to remain sluggish or dull of hearing. I want you to have the same earnestness, this hope, until the end. Now, this word that he uses here means lazy or sluggish. He said, I don't want you to remain in that state of sluggishness, laziness in hearing the gospel. I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that you have all of these benefits that are yours because you are in union with Christ, because you're tethered to Christ, because you're anchored to Christ. See, the Hebrews had lost sight of these very basic elementary doctrine of Christ, which he went over in chapter 6 at the very beginning. They had become lazy in hearing the good news of the gospel, lazy in listening to the gospel. And so they became dull of hearing. And what they needed to do was to put some gospel records on and once again hear and delight in and enjoy The gospel of God's son. And this theme of hearing the record of the gospel over and over has been a theme throughout Hebrews so far. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, the preacher says, But in these last days God has spoken to us by his son. The fact that God has spoken to us implies that we are to listen to what he has said about his son Jesus. And then in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard God say about his son in the gospel. And then in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 and verse 15, and in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 7, he repeats this phrase, quoting Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice voice. And then again in Hebrews 4, 2, he says, for good news or for the gospel came to us just as it came to them, that first generation that came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership. He says, the good news came to us, the gospel came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so his point here is that it's as the Hebrews listen to the record of God's faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his people, it's then that they will end up doing what he wants them to do in verse 12. He says they will become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He wants them to imitate People. Now, the people that the preacher has in mind for them to imitate are those people that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, which people call the hall of faith. All these people that he mentions in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the preacher is alluding to that now. He'll talk about it when he gets them. He says, I want you to imitate these people who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He wants them to imitate and to do what all of God's people have always done, which is to be patient and to trust God's promises as they await the new heavens and the new earth. 
That's the promises that they will inherit. It's the city that is to come. It's the new Jerusalem. It's being with Jesus forever. It's the hope of resurrection. Having a new glorified body that never gets sick again. And the thing that I can't wait for, never sins again. That's the hope of the gospel, Christian, is that when Jesus returns, you will never sin again. And in order for us to get there, to get to eternity, we have to wait and we have to trust. And waiting is hard, right? Waiting might be the hardest thing for a Christian to do. Waiting is the hardest part of suffering and undergoing difficult seasons in life. That's the hardest part about any suffering, is waiting. It's hard because I told you several weeks ago, waiting is it's located in the dimension of time. It's located within minutes and hours and days and weeks and, and months and years. So when we suffer, we're, we're, we're bound by the clock. We have 24-hour periods that we have to go through, and we can't fast forward to those to find relief. We have to wait and trust as we go through them. See, that's where suffering, and that's where sorrow lives. Suffering and sorrow lives in time. Suffering and hardship and heartache, they live in clocks, and they live in calendars. And Scripture's one-word answer to suffering is always, wait. We would love instant relief from suffering and pain and heartache, or at least that's how I react to suffering. I want instant relief. I want instant answers. I want instant restoration. I want instant reconciliation. But that's not how this thing works. That's just me. I'm being honest with you. When pain and suffering and sorrow and relational strain comes into my life, I want it fixed right away. And if I'm honest with you, I can even say in that moment, God, I don't even care about being conformed to the image of Christ as I go through this thing. I just want the pain to end. And it's not that I don't want to be conformed to the image of Christ. I do. But sometimes life is so hard and so painful and so difficult that you say, I don't even care about all that stuff. God, I just want it to end. I want relief. And God's answer many times is wait because God is more interested in refinement He's more interested in our refinement as we go through difficulties than he is our own relief. So the answer is often, wait. I'm sure we've all had this thought as we're experiencing troubles and hardships and aches and pains and sorrow. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Oh, come today, Lord. I'm tired. Life is so hard. This life is so difficult. Come today. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I said that several times over the last week. And I'm sure you've said it many times too. Why do we do that? Because life in this fallen, broken world is hard. We want Jesus to come back because we long for eternity. We long for resurrection. We long for glorification. We long to see Jesus with very physical eyes and to be with him forever. We want him to come back because life is hard. We're tired of the pain. We're tired of the heartache. We're tired of how sin destroys everything. And so it's hard to wait for Jesus. It's hard to wait for heaven, to wait for eternity. 
It's hard to wait for these promises to come true. And nobody knew this more than Abraham. He had to wait and trust and wait and trust. And that's exactly why the preacher brings Abraham up here. The preacher wants the Hebrews to imitate Abraham, the one who learned to wait patiently and inherit the promises. Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. The preacher of Hebrews quotes Genesis 22 here, when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. And you know the story. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, and he, he got the wood and the fire and tied him up. And then at the last minute, the Lord intervened. And because of his faith and trust and his willingness to do what God said, God said at that moment the words that the preacher quotes here. He says, I will surely bless you and surely multiply your descendants. And so the preacher brings up Abraham here because he's driving home his point that God is faithful to his promises. God was faithful to the promise that he gave to Abraham and his descendants. And if you remember the story of Abraham, he had to be reminded of this promise over and over again. To Abraham had to put his gospel records on because the Lord appeared to him in Genesis 12, then Genesis 15, then Genesis 17, and then Genesis 22. And had to keep reiterating his promise because Abraham needed to hear it over and over again. We need to hear it over and over again because it's hard. And if you think it's hard to believe God's promises, put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a minute. God appeared to him when he was almost 100 years old and Sarah was 90 and he said, this time next year, you two are going to have a kid. Not because you adopt it, not because you have a miraculous birth the way that my son will miraculously be born in, in, in Mary. No, you two who are 190 years old, you're going to have a baby this time year. I promise you that, but you've got to do your part. As a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man, they had to do their part. I think you know what I'm talking about when I say they had to do their part. They had to trust God. Sarah had to trust, I am 90 years old. I am well past the years of having a child. And I have to believe what God says. And so we're going to go into the tent, and we're going to put our records on, and then we're going to do what we're supposed to do. And they had a baby. The promise that God made to Abraham was this. God swore to Abraham, you will have many descendants. Now, in our world, men swear by something greater than themselves. We say things like, I swear to God, I didn't do it. We appeal to a higher power and a higher person. We put our hand on on the Bible when we go to court and we say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But when God does this, he has no one greater that he can appeal to. 
No one greater that he can call on. So when God wanted to show Abraham and his descendants after him that he can be trusted, he could not swear on anyone greater because there's no one greater than God to swear on. God couldn't say, I swear to God or I swear to me. But he did. He swore by himself. By his own name. He placed his own name and reputation and character on the line. And he sealed his promise to Abraham and his descendants with two unchangeable things. Number one, his promise. And number two, his oath. Now why? Why would God do this? Why swear by his own name and take an oath? Well, here's the answer. To show more convincingly to us that he keeps his promises. That he is faithful. Now, God was already trustworthy, right? So he didn't need to do this because he's already trustworthy. Who he is, he's trustworthy. Yet he swore an oath to accommodate the weakness of our faith. He did this so that Abraham would not fall prey to doubt or unbelief. He did this to accommodate the weakness of our faith. So God swore and took an oath so that Abraham... And the Hebrews and us who are children of Abraham, that we would put these gospel records on and play them over and over and over again and find comfort and know that everything was going to be okay. God promised and took an oath so that, as verse 18 says, we who have fled to Jesus for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us and the promise and the hope is the gospel and all the benefits that are ours because we are in union with Christ it's the benefits of justification being declared righteous in God's eyes it's the benefits of adoption being adopted into God's family where we call on God as Father. It's the benefits of sanctification being set apart and saying you belong to Jesus now. It's the benefits of resurrection, coming back from the dead. It's the benefits of glorification. And those last two benefits, we have to wait. We have to wait for resurrection. We have to wait for glorification. But keep the context in mind again. The Hebrews a group of predominantly Jewish converts who had fled to Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Redeemer, who had fled to him for refuge, they were being tempted to return to Moses, to go back to Mount Sinai, to return to the Old Testament law, to be justified and to be able to find forgiveness of sins. They were suffering from doxological dementia, giving thanks to God that Jesus had fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Redeemer and the Messiah. They were suffering from grace amnesia, not understanding how grace works. They were suffering suffering from gospel forgetfulness and they had become dull of hearing and they were beginning to slip into thinking that what they did for God would make them right with God. They were slipping back into performance Christianity whereby they would try to earn and keep God's favor and love through their obedience to the law. They were trying to earn the promise through their performance. They're trying to inherit the promises through what they did and not by faith 
toward God in what Jesus had done for them. Please understand this. The gospel is about God's promise to us. And the law is about our obedience, our performance. The law says do. That's performance. But the gospel says done. That's promise. When God made his promise to Abraham, keep in mind the promise came before the law. Abraham came before Moses. When God made his promise to Abraham, he said, I will. I will. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. But in the law given to Moses at Sinai, God said, you shall. You shall do this. You shall not do that. And so the law can be summed up as saying, do this and live. If you obey, you'll live. If you're perfect, you'll live. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when you hear Jesus say that, you say, I can't do that. I can't be perfect. We look around and we find that we can't do it because our record of law-keeping stinks because God says be perfect. No one can be perfect. We're lawbreakers by nature. All we see is our rebellion and sin. We're stuck in the darkness of that. But then the promise of the gospel shines in and says, done, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. Jesus obeyed the law for you. Jesus was perfect for you. Jesus lived the life that you could never live because you're a lawbreaker by nature, a sinner. And Jesus died the death that you deserve because you're a sinner. And so now, when you trust and believe in him, you're blameless. You're justified. You have Jesus' perfect record of law-keeping. You're justified by faith. Faith toward God, not by works. And though we affirm that, justification by grace through faith, yet how many of us still live with that performance mentality? Jerry Bridges says, We all, having trusted Christ alone for our salvation, have a tendency to revert to a performance-based relationship with God. We know we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but we assume we earn God's acceptance and blessings in our daily lives by our performance. This is exactly what the Hebrews were struggling with. They were being pressured and tempted to return to the law, to return to Mount Sinai, to return to Moses. They were being pressured to earn their way, to earn their inheritance instead of believing by faith. They were being pressured to earn the promise instead of trusting the promise. They were forgetting that Jesus had already secured their eternal inheritance for them. They just had to wait patiently and trust that it's true. And so the preacher is encouraging them here to hold fast to the gospel and he will actually give them another booster shot of hope to move them in that direction. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is now the third time that the preacher has brought up Melchizedek, and Lord willing, we will finally look at that last, next week when we get to chapter 7. But the preacher is reminding the Hebrews here that they have a sure and steadfast anchor for their souls. 
They have a hope that enters into the inner place, into God's presence. Remember, under the old covenant, the high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. One time a year. But in the new covenant, Jesus has entered into God's presence as our high priest. And as we see in chapter 7, he lives to make intercession for us. The Hebrews forgot that they have an anchor for their souls. They're being pressured to return to the law, to return to Moses, to return to Mount Sinai. What was Mount Sinai like? Do you remember? Thunder, smoke, lightning, fire, earthquake, and a thundering voice. And God said, if anyone comes close and touches the mountain, then they die. It was all fear and terror. Do you remember how the Israelites responded? They said to Moses, tell God not to talk anymore. He can talk to you, but don't let him talk to us. And so the Hebrews actually wanted to return to this. They actually wanted to return to Sinai, to return to the law. But in chapter 12, the preacher will remind them that they haven't come to scary, terror-inducing, die if you so much as touch it, Mount Sinai. He'll tell them in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, that you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. They wanted to return to the old covenant, and the preacher's saying, no, you've come to the new covenant. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And his blood speaks a better word than Abel. What did Abel's blood cry out? Remember Abel was killed by Cain? What did Abel's blood cry out? Guilty. Guilty. Cain is guilty of murder. And what is the better word that Jesus' blood cries out about us? Forgiven, clean, blameless, washed, pure, perfect, justified. The Hebrews forgot that their hope is Jesus himself. They forgot that Jesus is their forerunner who had gone into God's white, hot, holy presence and spilled his innocent blood on their behalf. And so the preacher is reminding them here that they have an anchor. They're tied to Jesus. They're tethered to Jesus. They are in union with Christ now and nothing can separate them from God's love. Not even their behavior. Isn't that good news, Christian? That even your behavior cannot separate your union with Christ. Maybe you're here today and that's how you view God. Maybe you think God's love was like Rashad Allison, the way he describes his mom's love for him, a love redolent of vinegar and without the slightest hint of sweetness. That's not how God's love is. But that's how we sometimes think of him, isn't it? If you think God's love is redolent or reminiscent of vinegar without the slightest hint of sweetness, then you need to put your gospel records on. 
And here is a litmus test to see if you need to put your gospel records on this morning. If these things describe you, then you need to put your gospel records on. Do you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval? I mean, you live with this kind of nagging sense in the back of your mind and in the back of your heart, just that there's this disapproval that God feels towards you as his child. You think God is frowning at you, that he's a a grumpy dad, that that he's always mad and you've let him down. Like He's always like, oh, I just wish these kids would get their act together. Oh, if that's how you view God, you don't understand grace. You don't understand the gospel. You need to put your gospel records on this morning and hear the good news of God's son all over again. You have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Or maybe you feel sheepish bringing your needs before him when you've just failed him. I mean, you just blew it. You just did that sin that you've done 10,000 times and that you've repented of 10,000 times and sworn to God, I'll never ever do that again, I promise. And you do it again and then you have a real need and you need to go to him and you feel like I can't come to him because I just did that. So maybe if I wait a few days and get some distance between me and that sin, then maybe I can come and bring this real need before him. If that's you today, You don't understand grace. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand God. We saw in Hebrews chapter 4 that we can go boldly to his throne of grace to find grace and mercy in time of need. If that's you today, you need to put your gospel records on and hear the good news of God's son that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Or maybe you feel you deserve an answer to prayer because of all of your hard work and sacrifice. You get up and pray for two hours every morning, and you're like, God, you owe me. All these loser Christians at church say they can barely pray, and I pray two hours in the morning, and God, you owe me. You owe me, God, because I read through Leviticus in one sitting, and I love it. Look at all the passages I've underlined, God. Everybody else's Bibles are stuck together right there. They've never even opened that book, and I've and so you owe me. I work tirelessly at the church. I do so much for you and your name. You owe me, God. If that's you, oh, you don't understand grace. You don't understand how God works. If that's you, you need to put your gospel records on this morning and hear the good news of God's son that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Or maybe you assume that you've sinned so many times that you've used up all your credit of forgiveness. You've sinned your sin. You know, the one that you do all the time that you're really good at. And you do it over and over again. And you do it again. And then you just think, there's no way that God can forgive me now. It's like, God, surely I've used up all my credit with you. And you think that God can't and won't forgive you. If that's you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand how grace works. You need to put your gospel records on. Hear the good news of God's son again that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Or maybe you feel more confident before God because you've been faithful with your quiet times and prayer and witnessing to others. And so you think, I I, I have deserved and earned a speed pass to God. 
Like all these other Christians I talk to, man, they say they don't pray, they don't read their Bible, they don't serve, they don't give, they don't ever witness. And God, oh, you must be looking upon me with favor. And I just get a little speed pass right past these people into your presence. If that's you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand how grace works. You need to put your gospel records on and hear the good news of God's son that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Or maybe you're here this morning and you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in his eyes. Some of you are here today and you just feel dirty. You feel dirty all the time because you're aware of your failures. You're aware of your sin. You're aware of how you don't measure up. And so you you got this just nagging sense of shame that never goes away. There's a sense that you're just dirty and you're unclean. And when you feel like God looks at you, he's repulsed by you. And it's like, oh, get away. If that's you, Christian, you don't understand grace. You need to put your gospel records on this morning because when God sees you, Christian, he sees his son, Jesus. And when God sees his son, Jesus, it delights him and warms his heart. God delights in you, Christian, because you are in union with his son. If that's you this morning and you just feel dirty all the time, you need to put your gospel records on and hear the good news of God's Son that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Or maybe you're here today and you fear the day may not go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time. Now, you've done that before, haven't you? You wake up late, sleep through your alarm, you don't have time to pray and read God's Word in the morning, and you think, all oh, because of that, my life is going to be ruined. Because I didn't read the Bible and pray today, I'm probably going to lose my job. My family's going to fall apart. The house is going to burn down because I didn't read the Bible. Who's God in that scenario? Haven't we all been there? That sense of, I didn't pray. Oh my God, man, my whole day is going to fall apart now. Like it's all riding on us. If that's you, you don't understand grace. You need to put your gospel records on and hear the good news of God's son that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Or maybe you're here this morning and you think God is punishing you because you're suffering so much in your life. Listen, God punished his son Jesus for you. He's not out to get you, Christian. Listen, if God was out to get you, he could get you. He could make your life very miserable if he wanted to. If he wanted to take you out, he could take you out. Your father loves you, Christian, and he punished his son for your sin. If you think God is punishing you because you're suffering so much, you need to put your gospel records on. Hear the good news of God's son that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Maybe you're here today and you assume that you can do something to make God love you more or less. Maybe you think God loves you more because you do read your Bible all the time. Maybe you think God loves you more because you serve the homeless more than anyone else. Or maybe you think you could actually do something to make God love you less. Some people are here today and you think, God loves me more. I can earn more of his love because of what I do for him. And there are some people here today who think, God will love me less because of what I don't do for him. If you're in either one of those camps, you don't understand grace. You need to put your gospel records on this morning and hear the good news of God's son that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul.
If you've repented of your sins and you're trusting in Jesus Christ and you have fled to him for refuge, he will never leave you or forsake you. You can have full assurance of hope this morning. You have a hope that is set before you, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has spilled his blood for you. You have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul, and it's your high priest, Jesus We've seen this in Hebrews so far. Jesus is our great high priest. He's our faithful high priest. And he is our merciful high priest. And he has gone into God's presence and he represents us. Think about that. Jesus represents us. Sinners. Struggling sinners, doubting sinners, confused sinners, worried sinners, despairing sinners, weak sinners. We're just like Abraham. He doubted God's promises. We're just like the Hebrews. They're doubting God's promises. We sin, we suffer, we struggle, we doubt, and we're so prone to lose hope. And it's why God made promises to us to accommodate the weakness of our faith. So the preacher is writing to remind the Hebrews that they need to endure and wait patiently for God's promises. He wants them to have hope. He wants them to have hope when they struggle. He wants them to have hope when they doubt. He wants them to have hope when they've binged on sin. He wants them to have hope when they're stressed out. He wants them to have hope when they're suffering persecution. He wants them to have hope when they're being laughed at by their family members. He wants them to have hope when they just want Jesus to come back ASAP. How do you fill that hope tank back up? Put your gospel records on. Rehearse God's promises. Hear the promises in his word. Pay closer attention to the good news that you've heard. Find a promise in his word and cling to it. Remind yourself that you have a Father in heaven who is working all things for your good and his glory. Remind yourself that things are not as they appear. Put your gospel records on and remind yourself that God is writing stories and he's redeeming messes in ways that you can't see. And you won't be able to see it all fully until you see him face to faith. But until then, we have to see him with the eyes of faith. Let's pray, and then we'll stand, and we'll put a gospel record on, and we'll sing our hearts out. And I have trust and have confidence that Jesus will remind us once again that everything will be okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We don't understand it so many times. We get it messed up. We bring our own thoughts into it. We thank you for the gospel that you loved us so much you gave your one and only son and punished him for our sin and our rebellion. Father, may we hear the good news of your son over and over again. May it fill our hope up as we wait patiently to inherit the promises. Thank you that we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, your Son, Jesus. Impress that upon our hearts again by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.